from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. We're bringing the balm today. I am joined in studio by Rob the Rocket and KC. To all of you tuning in around the world from as far away as Australia and South Africa, France, the UK, the wonderful UK, up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada, and across the United States from Fort Lauderdale all the way, all the way up to Walla Walla. It's great to have you all here. Uh, Rob, say hello. Hey, I am glad to be here. And Sven, people checking in for the lightning round that we've just been looking at as they're coming in, a lot of them seem to be new to us, which makes me very happy. It's great. A lot of new folks. That's terrific. Yes. And for those of you that uh, aren't aware how this works, basically we are taping an episode of the Badass Counseling Show. So if you're seeing me right now, this is technically not the Badass Counseling Show. It's a taping to be posted later. Uh, and these lightning rounds where I'm just taking listener questions, thump the teacher sort of thing, these will go up, uh, this one will go up somewhere in probably early October, but lightning rounds always, we get put a new one out each Sunday, and then the counseling sessions where I'm actually counseling someone, those come out on Thursdays. However, there is a badass counseling hack, and the badass counseling show hack is you don't have to wait till October. You can get us right now, and it stays posted on one platform and one platform only, and that is YouTube. And uh, so I'm right here on Facebook, I'm right here on TikTok, and I am right up there on YouTube. So if you don't wanna wait till October, uh, please feel free to uh, check us out over on YouTube. And we have special extra stuff on our counseling sessions that come out on Thursdays. The only place where you can get, we no longer post the overtime where I'm taking an extra five, 10 minutes with the guest. And oftentimes that's where the biggest shit comes out. Um, we no longer post that with the with the podcast itself. That is available only on YouTube. Uh, so please check us out, Badass Counseling over on YouTube. All right, let's get going here, fine humans. We've got everyone checked in. All right, and we're taking the first questions. Now, I said I was gonna take a question that someone had begged me to address, that I was gonna take that one first, but I'm gonna hold off because I like this one. Two of these that are right in front of me. How do you define an extreme taker? I've been struggling with a relationship. An extreme taker is someone who takes. Takes the attention, takes the air out of the room, takes their agenda as primary, that their feelings, their wants, their needs, their expectations are always or almost always the most important thing and your needs, wants, feelings, expectations don't matter. That they don't uh, forgive, they don't apologize that more often than not, it's always about them and they're happy to make you think you're the problem and they're happy to minimize your thoughts, your feelings, your wants. And that's why very often extreme takers either find or create to some degree extreme givers, someone who's just giving, giving, giving because gee, if I give more, then they'll give an ounce to me and then I'll feel loved and that's not an equitable relationship, not healthy and it's not a recipe for a long-term relationship. All right. Here we go. Uh, Michael asks, when you tell your clients to do an autobiography, what exactly do you want them to include? I deliberately tell them that I'm not going to tell them what's put in it. I just want to know your life story from your perspective. And people are like, well, don't you have a format? Don't you have a form? Nope. I want it from your perspective. You want to know why? Because I'll learn more about you from you doing it your way than I'll learn about you from you doing it my way. All right, next question. How do you help someone win the battle of emotions after being abandoned 
between the heart and the head. So I'm gonna just rearrange those clauses so it'll read a little easier for my little brain. How do you help someone win the battle of emotions between the heart and the head after being abandoned? Um, winning the battle of emotions is won by having the courage to feel the emotions, allowing all the emotions up and out and flushing them out out in your journaling and in in writing letters to the person uh, that you're battling with. We just taped an episode of the show earlier today uh, with a woman struggling with exactly this, that she was still in love with and longing for her ex, but her ex had been an abuser. And truth is she had abused her ex as well. So it's going both ways. But so she knows the relationship is bad for her, but uh, she still loves him. And it's been several years. And what we discovered in the in the uh, show was that she was, she has been, the only time she really feels that love or feels it most intensely is when she's around him, especially when it's their son's birthday. They're, they have a shared child. Son's birthday or when they're handing the son off or taking the son back or whatever, when she's around him. And I said, well, wait a minute. If that's when you feel the feelings most intensely, that means you're not feeling the feelings when you're not with them. And she says, well, you know, I to some degree, I don't, I sort of shut that down. I said, oh, so you're shutting down the positive feelings, not just the negative feelings. You don't want to feel those because you can then can't go on with life and you can't sort of keep going in a good direction. But the good feelings of love come with the pain and all the other stuff. So what you're doing is you're not just ignoring the painful feelings that you don't want to touch, you're ignoring the love, but that means the love is still in there. It's not coming out. And as long as it's still in there, that means a piece of you, a big piece of you is still in the past. So Rachel, when you asked me the question, how do you help someone win the battle of emotions between head and heart after being abandoned? You win the battle by flushing it all out, by writing a letter to that person who abandoned you. Maybe it was a lover, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend. Writing a letter that you do not send because if you think you're gonna send it, you're gonna edit the fuck out of that thing, right? You're gonna try to get it by him. You're gonna try to make it so that they'll hear it and everything. No, I just want you to flush out all the feelings, the love, the hate, the pain, the sadness, the rage, flush and flush and flush. That's the only way you win the battle. You don't just pretend it's not there or pack it down or ignore it or stay busy. No, you flush it all out so that it's not controlling you from within. Then you'll discover how effortless and light it really is to move on and not fear abandonment in the future. Now to the question that I was uh, asked earlier this week by someone who begged me to address it. I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. I talk about the fuck it point. What is the fuck it point? This person asked me. When you're in a relationship, a friendship, a parent relationship where you are eating a lot of shit or in a career or a work situation where it just sucks, it bleeds you, it bores you, it numbs you, it sucks the life out of you, it's draining your life energy. When you're in a situation such as that, it's like, well, what should I do? I don't know what to do. Should I move on? I can't move on. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to make it happen and so on and so forth. And what I tell people is, in a way, you don't have to do anything. Eventually, your pain will get so bad because this shit doesn't magically heal itself. If you're not doing the work of going inside to find the source of your pain and so forth, that's okay. Because your pain will get worse. Well, Sven, how is my pain getting worse? A good thing. I said, because it drives you to what I call the fuck it point. And the fuck it point is where the pain has become so bad that you basically find you're not figuring it out. You're not hoping, you're not wondering, you're not, uh, you know, whatever. You're not doing anything. It's just like you just reach a point where it's like, fuck it. I don't even fucking care anymore. Fuck this shit. And all of a sudden you have the courage to do today what just yesterday you didn't have the courage to do. The pain has gotten so bad. Pain is this wonderful motivator. Once it gets so bad, 
It motivates, it pushes you past the point of giving a shit about what they're gonna say, giving a shit about how they're gonna react, or giving a shit about how I'm gonna figure it out. I'll figure it out. I don't even care anymore. I have to do this. That's the fucking point. Where you don't even care what people are gonna say. It's just like, I gotta do this. And you have a courage that you just yesterday didn't have. But not only that, you have a clarity, a clarity that just yesterday you didn't have. The fucking point isn't, gee, I think I'm going to. The fucking point isn't, I, I wonder if I should. The fucking point is fucking, I don't even fucking care anymore. I know what I'm gonna do. Fuck this shit. And I'm gonna do what I gotta do. I gotta get this done. I gotta move on with my life for my own fucking sanity. All right, next question, fine people. Hello, Sven. I gave my son a pair of sneakers that I bought him and my ex-wife made him throw it out because they remind her of me and the associations of the past. Is she wrong for doing that? Yes. Aren't her triggers her problem to work through and deal with? Yes. Thank you in advance. You're welcome. Asked and answered. Yes, absolutely wrong. Because what she did was she was, it's not just that her triggers and her pain are her shit to deal with. Yes, it's that. But to take a gift from a child? What the fuck? You know, a, a pair of sneakers and you're going to take it because of your own shit? In a way, that's you've just told me the perfect metaphor for your relationship with her. But not only that, the perfect metaphor for your son's relationship with their mother. Mom fundamentally conveyed the underlying message in that act. I don't care about your feelings. My feelings are more important than your feelings. So, fine people who have been following me for a very long time, where does that kid end up 10 years from now? Where does that kid end up 20 years from now? If he's getting the underlying message from a parent, your feelings don't matter, Sonny. You don't matter, Sonny. What sort of relationship is little Billy going to be in when he's 14 and he has a girl that likes him and gives him his first kiss? He's gonna be like, oh my God, I'll do anything. Just be nice to me. I'm not gonna let you go, Right? And you can, even, you can even be mean to me because my feelings don't matter because he's been conditioned to believe his feelings don't matter, right? His mom threw out a pair of sneakers that were given to him as a gift. That was literally his possession. And she took them and threw them out because of her own shit. So what sort of relationship is it likely Billy's going to get in when he's 26? Same. And he's not even gonna know he's getting into a relationship with someone who minimizes his own feelings. And he's gonna not notice as that slow creep happens of this person he's dating, man, woman, non-binary, in his 20s, in his 30s, in his teens. He's not gonna notice when that person takes him for granted, doesn't take his feelings into consideration, doesn't apologize. He's not even gonna know it. It's not even gonna register as a red flag because he was conditioned by his mother to believe this is normal. So what that means, if you are not providing counter-programming to your son that this is not okay, then he's going to think it is okay. Because he's going to take mom's actions as, well, if mom does it, it must be true. Mom only wants good for me. It must be good and right. I probably deserve to have my shoes thrown away, further cementing the notion that he ain't worth a shit, right? So if you're not counter-messaging that and planting the seed of, wait, this isn't okay, and I do, and you do matter, Billy, if you're not providing counter-messaging, he's going to believe that mom is right and that he's no good, and he's going to walk into all manner of shitty relationships, friendships even, where he is minimized and treated like he doesn't matter. And that, folks, is a problem. All right, next question. Got one here from YouTube, if you'd like. Hit me. All right, this is from Patty. And she asks, how do I get over my ex? We were together for three years, and we haven't been together for the past year. I'm now doing no contact. But he was the first one to show me true love, affection, kindness, friendship, and more. I feel like I lost my best friend and the love of my life. He doesn't want to be with me because of my kids. I left him for it, 
but I miss him every day. What do you think? I think you have a lot of love inside you and that love, Patty, is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with feeling that love. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you ended it. There's nothing wrong with the, uh, you know, uh, the reasons you did it, good, noble, honorable reasons, protecting your children, but your heart hurts. And that sucks. And we've all been there when our heart hurts, even years later. But the bottom line, Patty, is what you're telling me is if those feelings are inside of you, that means they're not outside of you. They're still in there. And the task then, Patty, is to begin to flush and flush and flush. If you are not writing letters to your ex that you do not send, you need to be. Because you're keeping it inside. And I'm sure part of you is afraid to get it out because then you wouldn't have it anymore. And you loved that love. You loved how it made you feel. You love missing him, even as you don't love missing him. But the only way to get it out, the reason we cling, the reason we hold on to a memory, to a past, to a career, to, oh, my 40s, they were such wonderful years, or to a lover, or to a child that is now 24 and we still wish they were four because they were so cute when they were four and I miss my four-year-old kid. All those things that I'm clinging to are because I'm holding those feelings inside rather than flushing them out. And the truth is you won't be ready to go into any new relationship in the future, Patty, as long as you still have one foot in the past, Patty. So time to start flushing all that shit out. Yeah, It means, yeah, being deliberate about going inside and allowing yourself to feel the pain, the love, the longing, the lust, the hatred, the anger, the rage, all the disappointment, the guilt, the feeling betrayed, all of that has to be getting has to be gotten out of you. You wouldn't have even written into the show unless you saw this as problematic that you're still holding on. And it's, it's no shame in that. It's not about shame, but it's clearly problematic. In other words, you don't want to be doing it anymore, which means if you don't want to be doing that anymore, you have to cur- have the courage to go in and flush it out. Rob? And uh, the fact that uh, he doesn't want to be with her because of her kids, that's on her list of non-negotiables, right? Right. Going forward. Absolutely. That is definitely on her list. And she sees it clearly and she acts on it. And so that's good and that's noble and uh, and that's good. Uh, but your vision will be continue to grow in clarity the more you get out all those feelings. And I just want to take an aside here, people, to this is something that's come up all week with counseling clients, and it always comes up, and that is how the swell, the pregnancy of emotions inside of us that we feel in a given situation, maybe someone or something has angered us, and then we act out of that anger. Or maybe we're feeling sadness and longing at the loss of a lover or missing a lover, or what have you, we very often act out of those emotions from that swollen emotional state. And very often our best actions are not done when we're in that swollen emotional state. We often do shit that we regret later. We taped an episode of the show today where we had a guest who, uh, upon being insulted uh, by her husband when she was uh, in a very, very emotionally fragile, fragile place, She was insulted in front of another person by her husband and she broke a glass and threw it at his face. She later regretted it and apologized for it, right? We do bad things. We make mistakes. We do things we later wish we hadn't done when we are in swollen emotional states. You want to know one from my life? You know how I always tell you guys, write those fucking letters, but don't send them, all right? You know how I always say that? Well, the reason I say don't send them is because I always used to send them, (laughs) I I was so swollen with emotion. I want her to know. I want her to know how I feel. Or I wrote these long letters to my family to explain what was going on in divorce. I wanted them to know. And then, uh, you know, 
you know, you sort of get your ass handed to you or, uh, you know, you get put down or you get taken advantage of or whatever it is. And then you realize later, you know, I could have written that same letter, gotten it off my chest and not sent it. And in fact, we get more off our chest. We get more of the crud out when we don't filter it through, gee, I'm gonna send it because then you're gonna edit it. So my point in all of this is we make decisions that usually often aren't in our best interest when we're in a swollen or pregnant emotional state. So that's why we wanna flush out these emotions in your therapy with your therapist, in your long talks with your best friend, in your journaling, in your letter writing, and some of the other tools that I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup, is that the getting those emotions out, then you're making your decisions from a state of greater clarity, from a state down deep inside of being centered. Next question. What was the biggest catalyst to cause you to tip your cup, Sven, as in love cup, okay, and flush it out? I'm holding on still. The biggest catalyst for me was just pain, that my love cup had been so full of pain and and longing and uh, going down paths that didn't amount to fruit, you know, didn't bear fruit. And so it wasn't even a, a matter of tipping my cup per se. It's really going in and, and starting to shovel out the shit and going in and uh, flushing it out and patching that hole on the bottom from the messages we're taught about ourselves. You don't matter. You're not lovable. You're not good enough. Um, and then you end it by saying, I'm holding on still. You're holding on, right? Because you're still wanting something, Thomas. You're still wanting something that's causing you to hold on. And maybe it's family you're holding on to. Maybe it's a lover. Maybe it's a way of life. Maybe it's a geography. Maybe it's a career. Whatever it is, you're holding on because you're still of the belief it's going to change. And very often what happens, and it often happens in the 30s or into the 40s of a person's life is they, re they begin to realize, holy shit, this is a pattern that is not going to change. I am not going to get my needs met by this person or by this career, that I'm just becoming more and more miserable. And in the end, the only catalyst I believe really is pain, that the pain of holding on gets so bad that you finally let go. It's like you're, it's like in a way you're holding on to someone's collar and they just keep punching you in the face and punching you in the face. But I'm holding on to their collar because I love them. I can't bear the thought of letting go. I fear letting go. I don't want to do without them. Whatever it is, I'm still holding on. And, it, and until the pain of getting punched in the face gets so bad, you're not going to fucking let go. All right, much more to come right after this short break. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt. No shit. He made me do homework too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the Badass. It's good to have you back. I love that particular commercial. I find it so interesting that that uh, particular uh, uh, former uh, client slash reader says, um, he kicked my butt, no shit. So it's like, butt and shit. So you're okay saying shit, but not okay saying he kicked my ass, which is more the normal phrase. I'll swear on some things, but not other things. And I actually know uh, the particular uh, former client who recorded that and good, good guy. So... Anyway, all right, Maya asks the question, what does live and learn mean? I've only heard the second one. Second, what, learn? Uh, what does live and learn mean? Well, I, that was a phrase my parents said all the time and I say it all the time. What it means is live and learn, that there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. Are you learning from them? 
There's nothing wrong with going through pain or hardship. What is it teaching you about yourself? I believe that it, pain and, and hard situations and loss and grief and anger and sadness, they all hold in their talon gems of wisdom. Inside of all of them are cascading waterfalls of new insight and growth. And so very often we just run from the pain, right? We spend so much of our lives running from all the shit from our past. And what we lose in that is all that's in there that we can learn about ourselves and about life. And very often we have to do the grieving work first, right? So let's say in the loss of a relationship, for instance, or even the loss of a, a person, right? But there's always growth. There's always new insight. There's always, this is always teaching me something about myself and about life more than just, gee, life sucks. There's always growth and wisdom in there. All right, here we go. Sonia asked the question. And if it's Sonia, I apologize. Uh, Sonia, it was a cute Sonia when I was in junior high. She lived a few blocks from me, Sonia. Um, I just think that's such a pretty name too. Sonia says, too many people are comfortable with conflict avoidance, accumulating and creating layers of frustration and anger, etc., rather than respond with conflict resolution thoughts. Yeah, I agree with you that we, we become a, you know, and we're sort of splitting hairs a little bit, but I think it's a neat little way of thinking about it. There are peacekeepers and there are peacemakers. People keeping the peace are, let's just keep the peace. Let's not address it. Let's not have any conflict. Let's just Let's just keep everything calm versus a person making the peace recognizes that there are problems and is willing to go into short-term conflict if necessary to create long-term peace. And, you know, you, Sonia says, uh, too many people are comfortable with conflict avoidance, accumulating, creating layers of frustration and anger. Yeah, and that shit builds up inside of you. And that really gets to the fucking point that I was talking about earlier, that as that pain accumulates, like, I don't want to live this way. And we finally become willing, even eager to go into the conflict or to no longer tolerate the angers and the frustrations and we begin to speak up. Well, in that act of speaking up, the underlying message we are sending to life is, I matter, my voice matters. Whereas if you're just constantly eating it and not expressing your truth and expressing your feelings, you're fundamentally saying, I don't matter. And this is why uh, you know, I, I have, I've had this issue with clients over the years, especially some male clients. And they say, well, I do everything for the woman I love. And I, you know, I'm honest and I do this and I do that. And I say, I can't dispute any of that. But the one thing I can dispute is that you're honest. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't cheat on her. I don't lie to her. And, and I say, that's true. But you do one thing that is absolutely corrupting your relationship. And it's a lie. And you're like, and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, old man? And I say, well, you're not being honest about how you're feeling when your feelings are small. So you only talk about your feelings when they get so big, you can't keep them anymore. You only let your feelings come bursting out when you're so sad or when you're so hurt or when you're so angry. And that's you lying because you've been conditioned to believe that your feelings when they're small don't matter or because you're avoiding the conflict. You don't want her to say, well, that's just stupid or I, you know, that's not important. And you, because deep down you believe that when your feelings are small, they don't matter. And that's why you save it for a blowout when it all, the pressure cooker explodes, right? So you're being fundamentally dishonest and it's because you're scared. You're scared of just staying in the moment, moment and talking about your feelings and acknowledging this hurt. So really the question to every one of you who's listening or watching, the question is, are you really being honest in your relationships and talking about it? And not only that, are you being present? Are you being present? Are you being present? the pain, the hurt, the longings of the other person. I opened my book. I talk about uh, that great movie by Cecil B. DeMille. 
who I believe was an Episcopalian, if I remember. I remember reading that recently, which is fascinating to me. He made, of course, the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? Great, one of the most iconic movies in American filmography. I think you would agree on that, Rob? Absolutely. Right. And in that story, of course, he's telling the story of Moses, and we know the story of Moses. Moses is working for his father-in-law and tending sheep, and he's on the side of the mountain. He encounters a burning bush, right? And you don't have to believe in this story if you don't want to. It's not the point. It's a wonderful metaphor, and that's why I'm recounting this story. And um, encounters a burning bush, and the burning bush is burning, but it doesn't burn up. And all of a sudden, God speaks, and says, what's the first thing out of your mouth? Is it go down to Egypt and free my people? Nope. First thing he says is, Moses, take off your Nikes. This is sacred motherfucking ground. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And what I talk about in the introduction of the book, when I talk about this story, the beauty of that story is the metaphor that so often when we are in a relationship we're not present to another person's pain. And very often, unfortunately in life, we're not present to our own stuff. And that is when my lover or when my brother starts talking about his you know, serious stuff or has a real issue, if I don't shift into, holy shit, I'm on sacred ground now, I need to take off my shoes and what? Tread gingerly. We're not talking about the grocery list anymore. We're not just talking about work anymore. That when people are opening up from their deepest place, and you can sense it if you're in tune, if you're aware to what's going around you, you become present to that person when you slow the fuck down and you realize, oh, we're on sacred ground. I need to take off my sandals, my Nikes, so to speak. I need to be present and tread gently. When you're another person's sacred ground, but very often with my clients, it's when they're on their own sacred ground because they're so terrified or they so believe they're, they've been conditioned to believe their own feelings don't matter. And I need to be understanding of other people's feelings, but mine, well, I'm a piece of shit and, oh, fuck, I fucked up, right? So they're not being gentle on their own sacred ground. But to be present to another human being is to just slow the fuck down. Back when I was waiting tables, I waited tables from, when did I have my first job? It was Polo Italia in St. Louis Park, Julie, before meeting Julie. So this is like 1990. And I think my last waiting tables job was like in the 2000 and I don't know, nine, seven, somewhere in there, whatever, off and on for 17 years while I was building my counseling practice, while I was going to seminary and whatever. And one, and I worked in some high-end shit and some regular hopping places and whatever. But one of the things I had to do when you've got a section of like four tables or a section of nine tables, whatever, that it's easy to get in motion and I, oh, I got that steak and it's got to come out quickly, but I'm, they're remaking this pasta and I got to get over to that table and drop off the salt. All this shit is going in your head, right? You got to be able to focus, right? And I loved waiting tables, but the thing, it's so easy to get moving very, very, very fast. But what I conditioned myself to do was right before I would come into a table, I would think of myself as an airplane coming in for a landing and I had to slow the fuck down. So that last step or two, I would deliberately walk slower so that when I got to the table, I'm talking slower, I'm calm. It's like everything's under control. I don't want my guests to feel rushed. That's the mentality you got to come in when it comes into comes to uh, talking with people and being with people on their sacred ground. And in your interactions with people, slow down, come in for a landing, be present, hear what they're saying, ask a follow-up question. If you don't know what to ask, just repeat back and say to them, I'm just going to repeat back what I think I heard. And you correct me if I'm wrong. That'll make someone feel heard. Those are very basic techniques, but that's what it means to be present to another human being and nothing will transform your relationships more. 
than you being present to someone and someone else being present to you. All right, next question. What is the mindset of a person that thinks it's normal to just go someone? <laughs> uh, the mindset is, I don't care about you. It's about me. Fuck off. I don't want to deal with uncomfortable situations. That's the mindset. That's it. It's someone who doesn't want to deal with an uncomfortable situation. And did you know that a lot of people who cheat, it may not be conscious, but very often it's subconscious, they will cheat because it's easier to cheat and have it blow up or potentially blow up, but blow up in their face and look like a cheater than it is to look the other person in the face and say, I need to end this relationship. Some people are so uncomfortable. To the question asked earlier by, uh, what was the fellow's name, Mark or Thomas something, where he said, you know, um, uh, conflict and avoiding conflict, right? Some people are so conflict averse that they would rather cheat and look like a cheater and blow up a relationship than to just sit down with the other person and say, listen, I can't do this anymore. I need to move on with my life. That's how conflict averse many people are. So what's the mindset of someone uh, that thinks it's normal to just go someone? What's the ultimate mindset? Fear. They're scaredy cat, fraidy cat. They're afraid to do the hard work of looking someone in the face and saying, I, I just kind of want to end it. Nothing against you, you're a nice person. I just want to end it. Well, why do you want to end it though? I thought it was going great. I, I'm just not feeling it. And no, nothing against you, you're a good person. I'm just not feeling it and giving you the courtesy of a conversation to your face. That's fear, that's fear. And so, and this is why fear corrupts relationships, it corrupts breakups, it corrupts everything. Our own fears, when we don't have the courage, just look someone in the face and just tell the fucking truth. Take your lumps and move on with your life. All right, next question. Hubby cheated and the person he cheated with is at the same lake fishing where Hubby is, presumably right now. Uh, how do you deal with it? Um, yeah, I'll be really honest with you. Just, I could be totally wrong on this one. Hubby fishing at the lake where the woman is that he cheated with, presumably it's a woman, you don't say, you say person, man or woman, whatever it is. Um, I wouldn't put up with it, quite frankly. It's, that That's just, it just is too, smells like fish, it is fish to me. And that smells very, very fishy. And if this is, uh, honestly, you know what, you know what, honestly? Drive up to the lake. Do some fishing of your own. Surprise your husband. Let's spend some time together, right? But uh, my question that I want to ask you is, and not that there's anything wrong with it, my question that I want to ask you is, uh, why are you with someone who cheated on you? Nothing wrong with that. Everybody has a different theory. Some people say, oh, if they cheat once, walk away. Some people say, no, you got to give them a chance to forgive. There's no should in here. I'm not scolding. I'm just curious. What is it for you? Why are you staying with someone who cheated on you? What promises were made? Have those promises been kept? Have you changed such you're able to hold this person accountable? Because it sort of smells a little bit in this situation, this person cheated and now they're on the same lake uh, fishing with the person they cheated with. I don't like it personally. I don't like it. Uh, Rob, care to chime in on that one? Something is fishy here, no doubt. Yes, something is fishy. All right. Uh, this person who's... Uh, name is a bluebird, it looks like. Just the picture of one. What type of men do you go for? Uh, <laughs> I generally don't, uh, but kind of you to ask. In my friendships, I like guys who are, uh, who have good spirit, kind men, uh, who I like people who are creative. I like creative types. Uh, my brothers, I've got all sorts of different flavors of brothers. Uh, Rob and I are friends. Rob's a nice fella, very intelligent fella, uh, you know, uh, kind of a joker and so forth. I consider him a very good friend. Uh, but beyond that, uh, that's all I got for you on that question. Um, 
Next question. My husband and I need counseling, but he refuses. Um, my question I wouldn't want to ask you is, wait, does your husband believe that you guys need counseling and he refuses? Or is it, I believe my husband and I need counseling, but he refuses? In either way, really, if he's refusing counseling when it's something you want and you believe you guys need, you've got a bigger problem than whatever the problem is that you're going to address in counseling. And the bigger problem is that um, you're fucked. You're fucked in terms of getting him to acknowledge your feelings and your wants and your needs and respecting your opinion. Clearly, he doesn't respect your opinion because you have an opinion that we need uh, counseling. And he's like, fuck off. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, fuck off. And so what, what I would strongly recommend for you is that you go into counseling for you or at the very least be doing this shit on your own self-work and use my book because it'll take you down there where you need to go. But you need to go deep inside of you to determine what the hell is going on with you that you're continuing to try to build a relationship with someone who has no interest in doing so, who doesn't want to get closer to you basically. And that's some heavy shit, but you got to go into it because that's what's keeping you locked in this loop. And you can't force someone to go to counseling if they don't want counseling. I mean, unless it's your underage child, then you can and you should if it's necessary. But uh, any therapist will tell you, if somebody doesn't want to counsel, they're not going to fucking open up. So you may get him in that room even, but he's not going to open up, which means you've got to go into your own self and do your deep counseling to determine what the hell you're going to do about this. And that may mean walking away. All right. Um, Jessica, the one who's... Uh, situation smelled a little fishy. Her husband cheated on her and now he's up fishing on the same lake with the woman who he cheated with. Jessica wrote back and said, we are both trying to make it work. You forgive me, Jessica, but I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Because if he were trying to make it work with you and genuinely gave a shit, he would pick some other lake. Now you don't say where you live, all right? It's not fair. I come from Minnesota. And in Minnesota, we are what? We are the land of 10,000 lakes. It's actually over 12,000 lakes. There's always another fucking lake and there's a boat launch. You can take your boat anywhere you want. Plenty of docks. Go fishing. Even in Minneapolis proper, you can go fishing. St. Paul, definitely go fishing. Million places, even in Texas, even in Nevada. You got Lake Mead. I don't know how much lake is left, but there's always new places to fish. But he chose that one lake. The question is, how do you know that she's there? I'm guessing he told you. Otherwise, how the hell would you possibly know, right? Which now it gets a little really fishy. And it's like, well, he's clearly on the up and up. He told me she's going to be there. No, no. If he told you she's going to be there, that means he knows she's going to be there. How does he know she's going to be there? More importantly, let's just say he randomly found out or whatever. By telling you that she's going to be there, he created what I call the illusion of transparency. Looks like he's being on the up and up, right? But he's still going to the lake where she's going to be. Huh. See, to me, if I'm in a relationship with someone and I'm trying to win their trust and take their feelings seriously, and if he's not trying to win your trust, he ain't fucking trying. If he's trying to win your trust, he picks any other lake on God's green earth other than the one she's gonna be on. Seems pretty obvious because he's if he's so fucking disconnected from realizing that if he goes to that lake, knowing she's there and you know she's there, you're going to be a nervous bundle of energy the entire time. That's not him working on it. That's him saying, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. Get over your fucking bullshit feelings, lady. That's what he's saying. Otherwise, he'd just go to a different lake. And I'm sorry, there are a million different fucking lakes in this world. All right, next question. 
And don't hold me to the number of million. It might be less. Um, how many lakes do you think there are in the world? I don't, all I know of what he's saying is of all the lakes in the world, she had to walk into this one. <laughs> of all the gin joints. Yes, yes. Good play, exactly, Rob. Exactly. What movie is that? Casablanca? Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, here, Lad is weighing in. Some folks are weighing in. Lad says... Men like Jessica's husband has no respect, in capital letters, for his wife. No respectful husband would ever do that. Um, I can't say you're wrong. All right. Uh-huh. And Kit Kat and Clobear say, telling you was a way to do something without really asking permission to transgress. I can't say you're wrong. Oh, Alaskan girl says, good play, Rob. Galapagos girl says, nice, Rob. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a witty one. All right. Just just full of wit. Uh-huh. Um oh, so now now wait, wait, wait. Jessica has one more comment. We're just going to run with it. So I'm going to take it and then I'll move on to another comment, but Jessica weighs back in. Here's what she says. We are from Washington. He's salmon fishing. Yes, he did tell me. She's on a guided boat and he's on his. A, Jessica, how the hell does he know all of this? How does he know that she's on a guided boat on the same lake? Yes, he did tell me. How does he know? Why does he know? Why does he still have information about the life of the one person he cheated with, the one person above all else who it would wound you most to know that he's still in communication? Why does he even know that? That's bullshit. If he hasn't severed communication, that means he has kept communication. That means he wants to keep communication with her. Do you see the problem, Jessica? And you say, we are from Washington. He's salmon fishing. He's salmon fishing. <laughs> Washington salmon fishing. Uh, tongue gets going. Uh, brain goes a little faster than the tongue. Um, I know for a fact. I've been to Washington. I know there's more than one lake, more than one river to go fishing in. And you know it too, Jessica. This is bullshit, man. He's fucking with you. I'm sorry. I just, it, it, even if he's on the up and up, let's just, let's take that for a second. Let's assume he's on the up and up and there's not going to be some shenanigans with those two. Let's just assume the shenanigans are done. What does it say that he's so fucking inconsiderate that he couldn't pick a different fucking lake? He cheated on you, breached, radical breach of trust. And he can't just pick one other lake or one other river. There's nothing happening. Okay, I believe you're happening, but do you understand how this hurts me? Do you understand how this hurts me that you're anywhere near her, that you're even in communication with her? Pick a different fucking lake. And you're saying, oh, Sven, you're really worked up. Yeah, I am. You want to know why? Because, man, don't hurt people. Does it really require so much to get out of your own fucking wants and desires in my world and I'm going to have whatever to understand how you're hurting another human being? Yeah, it pisses me off. I hate seeing people get hurt. All right, here we go. Oh, this is an interesting question. What is discipline? What is discipline? It's a great question. Well, what do we know? We know the Latin is disciple, right? Learner, teacher, follower, student. So discipline, so self-discipline, let's say in my workouts, means that I am discipling my body. I am teaching my body how to respond and what I want from it. And so when I went to the gym the last two days, normally I work out one day a week, I split it this week in two days, pushes, then pulls. And I am discipling my body to constantly acclimate to higher weights so that I can get stronger. 
and bigger. I like it. It's, what, it's my thing. Or if you're a runner or if you're a swimmer or whatever. And we're just talking about the physical realm of self-discipline. It's discipling. It's teaching your body. When I disciplined my children growing up, or let's just, let's take my mother and father. When they disciplined us, discipline is often thought of as scolding or punishing. But my mom was disciplined in her teaching us. Uh, my mom had been a school teacher. Highest paid school teacher coming out of uh, teacher's college in, was it Wahoo, Nebraska? Anyway, and uh, junior college. And uh, she disciplined us in teaching us good grammar and in teaching us manners. She didn't scold. She didn't have to. It's just every time I said, well, me and Wayne want to go to the Dairy Queen, he'd say, she'd say, Wayne and I. That was it. It was her self-discipline. She was discipling. She was teaching me a better grammar, right? Wayne and I. Or if I dropped a thank you or forgot a please, she'd say, can you say please? Or she'd say, please? Or she'd say, uh, can you say thank you, please? And then you do it. So she was just constantly disciplined. So now this gets into the realm of disciplining children, okay? If you are having to take grand measures of disciplining your child when they are 10 or when they are 14, big strokes and, you know, hitting your kid or massive groundings and things like that, or, or you know, taking away their car, things like that. More often than not, not always, but more often than not, it means that back when that child was two, one, two, four, and seven, the parent was not disciplined. And I don't mean the parent disciplined the child when the child was bad per se, like you spanked them or you scolded them or whatever. It means that you weren't conveying a consistent message every time a child engaged in a particular act. Furthermore, you were not disciplined in consistently giving love to the child and filling their love cup. It was my dogs, for instance. I have three dogs, a Rhodesian Ridgeback and two Morkies. And one of the struggles we have in our home is one of the Morkies is a yipper, Oscar. And he doesn't stop and he's just constantly, and I tell you know the other members of the household um, that you know we gotta stop uh, him each time because otherwise he's getting an inconsistent message on the barking that it's okay when I'm not around, when Sven's around, but when Sven is around, it's not okay and he gets, you know, he gets uh, disciplined. He gets, however I might discipline him. So he's getting inconsistent message. Well, it's the same with a child. If a child is not given consistent message at age three and seven and nine, then they're going to act inconsistently. Furthermore, if they're not consistently disciplined in, the parent isn't disciplined in giving the love to the child, then the child doesn't always know if they're loved or not loved. So discipline means discipling another person, teaching another person, teaching my own body. Um, and and it, it means to teach, it means to learn, it means to be, and, and in, a, in a simpler understanding, it means to be consistent, it means to be consistent. All right, folks, um, last question right now. Do you think exes can be friends? I absolutely believe exes can be friends. In fact, my girlfriend's ex-husband goes on vacations with us, spends Christmas together with us. They have a child together. He's a really nice fellow. And you know, we're in our 50s. It's not like when you're in your 20s and 30s and all the neuroses and shit like that. Can they be friends? Yes, but as you guys have heard me say, can't be it right away. So when people say, oh, let's be friends, let's be friends, sure. But let's take a year off. Let's take a two-year break. Because if usually if someone's trying to be friends, uh, they're wanting to hold on and try to somehow finagle it back into the old relationship. Or if someone is saying, oh, let's just be friends, they're trying to create distance between themselves and the one who is holding on. But that always ends up blowing it up in your fucking face because you discover this person's being a little puppy and they want to resurrect the relationship. If you're going to be friends, let it happen down the road. Just part your company, have a clean break now and meet up further down the road. Well, thanks guys for all of your questions. This has been another exciting round of the Badass Counseling Show lightning round. Rob, any final thoughts? It's all about timing, isn't it? Right. Timing when it's time, when it's time to forgive. Yep. 
Forgiveness, even if even if you don't love me anymore, says Don Henley, but it's a matter of when. When. Give it time. There's no rush. And there's no rush in reading my book, but my book is There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And the Badass Counseling Show comes out with new episodes every Thursday and every Sunday. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of KC and Rob the Rocket, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.